I was raised Muslim and early on it was just a joy. It was just like, there's this thing, Allah, they love you completely. You've got that forever. You've got this unconditional love with a protector. Just be good, be yourself. You're going to go to heaven. In heaven, you could get what you want. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm just going to get loads of Furbies. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out. How to do life But it turns out Nobody knows You're about to hear one of the I think I mean best is a big word Best is What does that even mean? Well, one of my favourite One of my Um one of the episodes that I have done that has meant the most to me, it was just, Glamru is, I mean, you can hear how stunned I am. Uh, they just left my flat and I'm recording this straight after. So I'm still a bit just blown away and a bit overwhelmed by this amazing person. So yeah. So you're about to hear that, and I will let you do that as quickly as I possibly can. First, I want to say I am on tour of the UK. I'm going to be in various places like Cambridge and Colchester, Salford, Newcastle, Leeds, Exeter, London, and a f some other places as well. I don't have the list with me right now, but a lot of places, and I would love to see all of you there. Uh, my book, Happy Fat, is coming out on May 2nd. You can pre-order it now, and apparently it matters that you pre-order it. So if you can do that, that would be amazing. Otherwise, just get it when you can. Or don't get it. I don't... I don't I'm not your mother. Um, you can also get it on audiobook and ebook. Is that even what you call it anymore? My God. My God. So that's all of that. I uh, have got... Another podcast called The Secret Dinosaur Cult, which I'm doing with Jody Mitchell. A really, a really fun project. It's a live comedy podcast. It's so, Jody is so funny. You know, it's just a queer, non-binary hosted comedy podcast about trauma and daddy issues and dinosaurs. If you're put off by the dinosaurs bit, don't worry. That's not that much about dinosaurs. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, if, you, if any of that sounds great to you, do feel free to go and check it out. Uh, Glamru, follow Glamru everywhere. I'm, I'm so excited to see them in Edinburgh. They're such a good person. Ah, oh, you always tease me about how much I gush over the guests I have on. I'm gonna try and not do that, but they were just here in my house. I'm still like, oh, <laughs> oh, what a great person. Anyways, I'll let you listen to our conversation, which meant a lot to me personally. And uh, I think we're, in many ways, very similar people. <laughs> and uh, in other ways, I have so much to learn from them. So please do enjoy this conversation with the amazing Glamru. Yeah, do you want to start by telling people who you are? Uh, hello, uh, my name is Amru Al-Qadi. Uh, my drag name is Glamru Al-Khalifa Al-Hayati Ladanim. Um, <laughs> I am currently um, finishing my memoir, uh, Unicorn, a memoir of a Muslim drag queen. Is that what it's called? That's not what it's called. It's called <laughs> Unicorn... What is it called? Oh my God. This okay. Is the first, yeah. <laughs> the first rule of writing a book. Yeah. Like oh my title. God. Unicorn, the memoir of a Muslim drag queen. That is what it's called. Wow. <laughs> I just had a blank. Um, which is exploring what it's like to have an intersectional identity um, at sites of conflict um, and clashing identities and trying to find the joy of it. And as well as, you know, exploring the trauma of it as well. Um, and. Yeah, I'm a performer, drag performer, and I write for TV and film as well. Have you done anything like... So you, you've performed for a while, mm -hmm. but the book... In your performance, do you speak about the same topics as the book covers? Yeah, I think I was actually feeling quite frustrated because... Um, and that's actually going to be changing this year because I'm doing a solo show in Edinburgh um, 
you know an hour solo show but i think i was finding definitely like within drag circuits and stuff only having like a five or ten minute slot to perform here and there it would be like trying to almost educate a majority white audience about race in a really funny way in like five minutes and that actually was almost felt like I was reducing my own identity like I definitely felt it last year in Edinburgh in my drag show denim which I you know I love denim but it's four white queens and me and each of us kind of get a slot and my slot kind of came halfway through the show and like within that 10 minutes I had to sort of like get the audience to understand what gaslighting was get them to sort of do it to me and then try and make fun of it and there was too much labor Um, and it wasn't actually that fun because I actually felt like how am I going to get a room to understand what racism is within like 10 minutes, the behavior of racism and how they might be doing it in the room. So what the part of the reason that I write, wrote the book was because also I'm, um, I used to write a column for the independent, like just two a month. And I, although I also really enjoyed that and I still continue to enjoy that. Um, it's always like, you got to write 600 words in response to this thing that's happened in the news today. And as a result, again, you start to like reduce your identity to like, as a Muslim, let me talk to you about the shootings. And it's like, you're only ever just like the politics of your identity. So I wanted to like have the space of, what is it? 75,000 words to like ex- show the experience of it. Sort of so I never have to do it again. I don't know if you felt similarly. Yeah, but do you think that... Do you think that's the effect or do you think you'll just keep having to answer this? I, I, I look at it from like a fat activism perspective mm-hmm. where I know that the fat activism community started in the 60s mm-hmm. and the same questions right. are being asked and the same answers are being answered, you know? Mm-hmm. I know the feeling though, like it's done. Just read, read, yeah, read the book. Yeah, read the book. But do you think that's what... Yeah, I mean, gonna... probably not, but I like um, just the experience of writing it and being able to like not have a debate as well was really yes um refreshing like cuz often when i'm asked to speak about those things it's usually like on a panel where someone says things that you know self identification is wrong and then you have 5 minutes where you're basically defending your right to exist and then you're done whereas like with this book there's there's no one debating me mm. and, and nothing is you know called into question it just i get to just relay the experience and say this is what it is i sort of just hope that yeah, i probably will be asked those questions over and over and i'm sure it will happen as the book is coming out but i'm just hoping that for people who read it it's starting to think about like queer identity and islamic identity in a non-polemical way and just understand the what human level like for the sake of argument uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so like it's not for a debate it's just like I, I to be honest didn't really want to write a memoir originally at first the book was like a series of essays um but then when I was speaking with my agent and taking it around and stuff everyone was like you can achieve what you set out to do on those essays by just telling us the experience of it because people will then connect and I think actually that does help um dispel prejudice if you find yourself empathizing with somebody you didn't think you had agreements with I think that's always important mm-hmm. did you know who you wrote it for um did I know who I wrote it for that's a really interesting question I actually was writing it for like younger versions of myself and like young I was it's not a YA book it's not a young adult book but it's I definitely was thinking of like what I wish I could have read when I had no awareness of any of this discourse and what would have touched me I don't mm. know what you... F- did you yeah, have someone... Well, my first draft was only to the people who hate me. Really? <laughs> so it was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, so you picked up this book. Oh, yeah, so you hate fat people. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a thing or two. And then I was, you know, everyone who read it were like, it's just very, um, very angry. And I was like, yeah, well, I should be angry <laughs> because the world is unfair. And then I did a reading uh, in front of, like, 30 people in, like, an audience and I and they were all just sitting there smiling, looking so happy. And then I had to be like, "Oh yeah, so you hate?" F-? And I could just it felt wrong. So I was like, "Maybe I need to not pay attention to those people mm-hmm. and just write it for yeah, teenage me or like mm. people who actually or people who want to know people who want to hear this because people do want to hear this. You know, there are nice people who are just curious to know these things. And if people are investing in you know a book is a commitment. I always think it's like you know you're spending 
probably a couple of weeks with one author mm. like that's you know so it's more likely that they're there willing to engage on the subject matter but i'm definitely with you like loads of people used to say to me after my independent articles like poof like you're an angry person and i'm like well the framing has been a shooting and i have 600 words like what do you want me to do here but yeah actually what was actually quite nice because i have a lot of rage i have to say about you know at my family at you know white people at straight people and just everything um and what was actually quite nice about the book was i kind of forgave a lot of stuff not saying i was forgiving racist for being racist but just like having the space to write it and really think about the experiences as well as like criticizing myself every now and then and going well what, what was i doing there it just like I managed to just like I the book really is about really like is about the forgiveness of my mother which I didn't know what the book was going to be and actually we're kind of closer as a result um but I'm now just like who the hell's going to want to read it oh loads of people we'll see I'm desperate to read oh I'm, well, desperate. I'm desperate to read yours it's on my long list at the moment I've got Angela Saini's and then I've oh, got yes. yours um, and then I've got Elizabeth Days. So that's yeah. my current reading list. Oh my God, I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh, thank you. Did you, uh, did you forgive your, did, did your mother read the book? Or was it through your own inside of yourself you did the forgiveness? Yeah, it's more the inside of myself. Um, it was like, my mother probably will never read the book. That's like something that I'm just like, firstly, like on a cultural level, like her English is not good enough. Mm. And I don't envisage an Arabic translation anytime soon, <laughs> TBH. But um, the book, I kind of don't, yeah, like the the, the book, um, I suppose just because of the amount of time and space you have in a book, you get to hold up an event and like look at it 360. Um, and in my mind like as an early person in my early 20s like my mum was just evil in my head just because of a lot of the stuff that she said to me about my sexual identity and gender identity it was like but actually when I had more time to think about her and there's I mean so much of the book is about her um it became apparent to me that so many of the things that I love about drag and queer identity were things that I learned from my mum like my mum is mm. a drag queen um, and that was like a real realization writing the book, like the funniest passages and the times the most joy I had writing was when I was just describing, you know, going shopping with my mum as a kid or like when we went on this EasyJet flight and she, she, she kind of basically brought four suitcases, which is like not obviously okay for an EasyJet flight. And then they said, no, you can't come on with that or you have to pay all this money. And like in front of all of Heathrow, she just screamed at the top of her lungs, this is not easy jet. This is difficult jet. Um, <laughs> and like that was like and like almost like I'd forgotten about how wonderful, how connected to her I was when she said that. So like it was almost just like the passage of just writing about her as like a character who is three dimensional. And it's not just all about her relationship with me made me sort of understand and also my mom has suffered a lot like she's like a muslim woman who's married one person who's the only man she's ever been with she's not been able to call into question any of the decisions in her life she's ha she has two kids a twin brother and me um my twin brother who's very straight and lives in the middle east um and for some reason i don't know why like i was just inherently a non-conformist and my mom just i think i actually think for the process of the book and starting to like write about her as a character was like, oh, I think she became quite jealous of me in terms of just like the level of autonomy that I was displaying. Because I think she was like, my mom once said to me, and this really blew my mind, she said many awful things about drag. But the one thing that I thought, which was quite interesting, although it is very problematic, she was a bit like, you know what? Like, it pisses me off that like, you know, you dress up as a woman and it's liberating for you and you're having the best time. Like I am a woman and my life has been a prison. Um, obviously that enters turfy territory, but it was like unexpected. It was like, actually there's a complexity here. Yeah, and I just wanted to investigate that in this book. That's not, so interesting. not to excuse the problematic abilities, but just to go like, what yeah. is your experience of me? Yeah. 
that's I've never thought of it as jealousy. I've never I've never even considered the feeling of jealousy mm. amongst a parent and a child. Of course, that can because I guess you would always be a bit even in like the you know in the non dysfunctional yeah <laughs> functional I think we call it. Uh, <laughs> that should be a word for that shouldn't yeah. it uh, I guess you would you know I guess your child would always be born in a slightly better world and mm. what, I mean I don't know I've never thought I know my um, like my mom's dream was always to be a librarian really yeah but well, she works in a factory it's not like the most impossible dream in the world yeah but that's a really specific kind of yeah she's loved books and I I've, I don't know if she has any feelings about it but compared to how she was like well no, but because I've, I've been at the factory for 30 years, so I should be here for another 30 years. Wow. So I shouldn't, compared to me, who's just like, oh, I think I want to do this, and then the next month I'm doing it. I've never thought that there might be a feeling of, oh, I wish I could have done that. Mm. That's, a lo- that's so, that just me. Yeah, I think it's, well, I can maybe place it, it quite culturally in terms of Arabic, in, in my specific mm-hmm. instance, Iraqi communities. Oh, yeah. What you have is, and I think you see this a lot in second generation um, ethnic communities, is like you have a really intense cultural territorialism, Um, partly because like your ethnic identity is so violated within the country that you're in. So me as an Iraqi living and being brought up in London at the time that like Iraq was also being, you know, attacked by by England, you know, what you see among um, second generation communities is like okay we need to make sure that each of us follows the same principles because otherwise we're going to be ripped apart it's like the collective self is really prominent in middle eastern communities so like it's really crazy to me like when i look at all my cousins i have like hundreds of cousins like even the most non-conformist ones there was one who used to like i used to bump into her like high as a kite in fabric when i was like 16 like and I always thought, mm, you're going to like run away with me. But like, even now she is like married, having kids. She like, get like, it's so indoctrinated into you that like, this is what you do. And there's a lot of guilt that gets taken onto you. Like, you you know, it, it's almost seen as being culturally insensitive if you disrespect what they're doing. So I think my parents found my behavior like disrespectful, quote unquote. And for a long time, I did internalize that. Because, you know, if I was like, I want to dress like this. They're like, that's disrespectful to our community and to Islam. And you're kind of being Islamophobic and you're kind of, and you're like, that, that is a lot to take on as a kid, to be honest. Um, but as I say, the book explores like the complexities of that, I hope. And, um, and also was also just about finding the joys of thy community as well. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. You said at one point that your mother was probably jealous of the autonomy you had. Because mm-hmm. there's who you are and your identity, mm-hmm. and then there's you actually living it. Mm-hmm. Do you think you had a choice? Mm. Or, yeah, I think I want to know if it's a, if, if it was ever a choice for you to not follow yeah. your identity. Or, well, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. This is when I sort of think of being queer is this like prophetic gift that I'm so happy happened to me. And when I start to feel a great deal of sympathy for straight people, um, and I take my brother who I adore deeply, um, as an example, and it's interesting because we are twins, um, and we were raised exactly the same, but he is straight and cisgender. And I think currently in his life, he's feeling very, a bit like, trapped in he's doing exactly what my parents would have wanted him to do and he lives in the middle east he's just moved out with them and he's got a job that i don't think he particularly loves um and he i think he sees me and he goes like what the hell how like how are you just doing what you want um and whether it was a choice it didn't feel like a choice at the time i think like for me i knew i was queer like at seven and then like properly like kind of on a daily basis like at 11 and at 13 it was like I knew that I was queer and it was and by what I had seen in my surrounding community as to like the treatment of gay people and queer people in my head it was like not an option it was I have to get out like I have to prepare so I honestly think I was preparing an exit strategy from a very young age like when I was like 13 
I became absurdly academic. And this is actually you actually when you there's a, good, a book called The Velvet Rage, which is about how queer people respond to being queer and one of one of the ways that happens is once you learn that you're queer and you've learned that you failed one avenue can be to start being incredibly successful and diligent at something as a way to kind of compensate Mm. and from the age of 13 I was like that's when my OCD became like you know you know I had to get you know became a medical problem but I was like, 99% is impossible. I have to get, and like, I honestly think I was preparing, like I was like arming my CV just so I could get out. And I did, but it didn't really feel like a choice. It it was a choice because I know other queer Muslims and queer Arabs who almost went the other way and were like too scared to even think about an exit strategy and just try to comply as much as possible. So what does exit mean? Is that a physical, emotional? Yeah, physical, emotional, cultural like moving away physically or just not being part of the community yeah i mean it was a big it was a big for me it was and i talk about this in the book it was me basically renouncing the fact so firstly it was quitting islam which i've actually come back to but back then it was quitting you know like i think as a kid you are actually really quite binary as a teenager you just go like that's good that's bad and in my head i was like okay cool middle east islam bad west good okay that's what that's what i think is fine so i like for me the exit was like yeah quitting islam stopping speaking arabic and then taking a scholarship to eton college so honestly which i think was like trying to be as white as possible <laughs> imagine that's such a yes yeah, so yeah it was horrible it was absolutely just you went to eton. yeah only for two years oh, yeah? as a scholarship and i tried to be white like i literally would be like hey governor and be like <laughs> Yeah, genuinely, like, how's Melassi? Like, I tried to do all that shit. Um, there was, like, I tried to join the chapel choir. And when they said to prepare a hymn, I sang All I Want for Christmas Is You, <laughs> which was so bad. Um, but yeah, and then it was, like, then my parents moved back to the Middle East. I was, like, cool, I'm going to uni, discovered drag. That to me was very liberatory, but you know, and then I mean, I just stopped speaking to my parents for a significant period of time, and then, but then, like, w- once the bubble of the institution fell away, like, once I was no longer at university, like, my mental health problems got really bad. I, I, I felt very, like, almost dysphoric just in terms of like who am I like I'm not really western, and obviously, like, the west was actually I was starting to realize was so racist and idiotic. And then I really miss my parents. And and then from about 25 to now, it's been like a slow re-establishing with my faith and her- heritage. And I've actually found a lot of like London queer Muslims, amazing group that literally finds Quranic justification for being queer. Like it literally goes in it and you can like be like, okay, you know, it's amazing. So that's been slow, but one thing I will say is I've had to do it on my terms. Like, I don't think my parents ever said, they didn't invite this to happen. Like, I've had to go, right, I'm battling you with this. So it's been really tiring, to be honest. But <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah, it's a lot. Talk to me about Islam. Islam is, well, it's kind of interesting because I was raised Muslim and early on, it was just a joy. It was just like, there's this thing, Allah, they love you completely. You've got that forever. You've got this unconditional love with a protector. Just be good, be yourself. You're going to go to heaven. In heaven, you could get what you want. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm just going to get loads of Furbies. (laughs) That was literally like, I was like, cool, I'm going to go to heaven, get a Furby. (laughs) Like, it's going to be great. Like, literally, that's all I literally assumed. And then... And this is the contentious thing. And it's interesting now with what's happened in Birmingham with the like Muslim protesters against LGBT education, because there's only one um, instance in the Quran, which is condemning of homosexuality. And it's very ambiguous. It's the story of Lot, basically. And um, it's really unclear as to whether the people who are being condemned are being condemned because they had sex with these male men or raped them. It's really unclear, unclear as to whether it's the rape that's being condemned. Um, culturally, 
conservatism and there's conservatism and everywhere interpreted it as mm. Allah will kill you if you're gay. And then that got interpreted into Islamic law. And then, and then, you know, and then this is why the Middle East in a way is kind of homophobic in, in so many ways. So my teachers used to teach me that um, being gay would send you to hell. And we had to do this exercise in Islam where you basically, you have this all day every all day long for the rest for your whole life you carry an angel on your left shoulder and one on your right shoulder and on your left shoulder they're counting sins and on the right they're counting good deeds and you're supposed to tally the whole time um and a sin could happen literally like from upside down footwear from thinking something mean about something and good deeds were actually weirdly quite hard to do you had, like you had to do something quite active you had to like improve someone's day like how are you going to do that at six years old so my head, it was just like, and actually chiropractors have noticed that my left shoulder is much harder to adjust. And that's the one with the bad, bad sense. Because I was like, and our teacher was like, if you're gay, it's infinitum. Like, and it goes up, 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 up. Wow. And it's also very visual because Islam, you don't get pictures. So what you do is there's no units, no iconography is allowed. So what you do, what they do is it's a lot of like closing your eyes in class and picturing what the Quran says. So it's much more of like a nightmare of your own making. Um, and we had a very, you know, terrifying, you know, on judgment day, you come out of your grave, you go up, Allah's going to weigh your sins. If you have more on your left, you go to hell for eternity in hell you drink boiling water 20 times a day this happens to you this is what it's going to be like wow. this is like six years old yeah. um and that is i think after a lot of therapy like those images are the things that like i think underpin probably most of my mental health issues it's funny my housemate this morning said he heard me screaming at night and it, I, it will be wow. will have been something to do with that like it's just ingrained yeah of course i mean that makes sense yeah it? it's too young it is yeah. too young to be instilling that level of like self-criticality yeah it's also i wonder how useful it is to use fear to you know because surely there must be so many you must be able to do the opposite and say oh it's really good you know, if you make people feel good, then heaven is nice instead of yeah, exactly scary, scary consequence. Well, and this is, but this is when you, you enter the like quite tricky terrain of like what became cultural and what actually yeah. became religious. Because can I ask? And this is just I'm just trying to check if what I think I know is true. The Quran is written; it's almost like poetry. Yes, yeah, 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 it is, it's, and it's old timey Arabic, right? Yeah. So. Sh from what I understand, it's very hard to actually decipher exactly what. Yeah, it's intentionally ambiguous. Yeah. Well, and the reason so, well, we don't know the full reason, but part of the reason that, that that's completely correct is that in the 10th century, just before the 10th century, there was this Islamic practice called um, Ijtihad, which basically encouraged exactly that. Like it was encouraged that groups of Muslims would come together and debate their interpretations and so that there could be as multiple readings as possible. So that was like part of Islamic practice was Islamic was actually Islam in terms of the world was actually very progressive until um until it around the 10th century and then it became less so but inherent in the face and Muhammad Prophet Muhammad actually said like Islam began as something strange and will end as something strange. So it was very much encouraged that it was like, like you said, it was like a work of art, like a mm. poem. And, um, you know, th it's very ambiguous, the words that are used. And you all talk about it and you go, I disagree and I disagree. That practice was eradicated by basically cisgender, heterosexual, mm. patriarchal men who wanted to use the Quran to implement Islamic law. That would essentially mean men get more power than women. And that's happened in every single, I mean, like The Handmaid's Tale shows that happening with Christianity. Um and I guess like people like with me are latent victims of that because the Islamic teacher was just teaching us, you know, those things which we were taught to think were in the Quran. Um, so, yeah. I'm sorry, I was just, I want to know what you think about the reason behind the ambiguity. Is it, do you think it's about us having to trust our 
instinct about it or mm. us having to analyze into what it means to us or is there a right answer and we just don't have the brains to yeah that's interesting well i think so there's this branch of islam called sufism which is what where i think the answer lies but in sufism there is no right answer every individual muslim has their own relationship with allah so allah is different for every single um different muslim and you can only access them through your own practice um and i've been to ijtihad workshops um in london and the practice is is you all go okay this is the passage you all debate everyone you know you don't write on the actual quran but you know you write on your own paper and and you form a set of disagreements um and you kind of revel in that that's actually what i think the ambiguity is about encouraging you to take a really active um active like role in your relationship with allah so that you're not basically passively like going okay whatever you say um but you know all forms of ideology even progressive ones like islam which used to be progressive communism which is technically progressive once it becomes you know institutionalized and there's like singular forces trying to like you know regulate it right it becomes really um so that's basically where i'm at now with islam is i'm trying to like detach what i learn culturally from what's actually there in the quran i'm not like fully practicing as such but like being able to like and reinterpret it on my own terms and divorce it from the things that I was just taught at school has made me like forgive because in my head it was like Islam is bad that was like that was in my head and I think I have a lot of um guilt about what I used to say about Islam as a 16 17 year old to white people to get them on my side I'd be like yeah yeah Islam Islam is barbaric and I'm now like oh my god like did I tell anyone who works who's now working in government that like islam is barbaric it's something i yeah, often think I about what you mean. yeah yeah I, i'm gonna i'm not gonna be mad at myself about I it i know what you mean yeah and i'm not gonna say you shouldn't be but yeah. obviously you know it would take more than that but yeah yeah i know what you mean is it hard to um differentiate between what feelings you have about islam that came from culture and family and teachers and then what is the pure feeling of love and religion and the actual connection mm. to Allah yeah it's really really hard because like I think all the cultural stuff um almost like I see it as like stage four cancer like the level of which it it took over so it's quite hard to find like healthy tissue as it were but I'm doing it now slowly like just by rereading talking to other queer Muslims just and just um and also like w one thing that I'm quite grateful for in my life is it you know has been very hard but it got very it probably started getting hard at seven when like my queer thoughts were happening but until then I had an extremely happy childhood um and I'm I want I sometimes wonder like I think that that uh, you know Amru until they were six is sort of ex exists in me like, well obviously they do but like I, because I'm I really like I'm not a self-destructive person like I, I do lo I do love people and I do like and I think that is just because like before it all got tainted there was something there anyway that's my interpretation do you, do you know about the inner child theory no well people talk to me about it but I don't really know about the theory oh I probably shouldn't be like I can't talk about it in like a teaching way because I probably got a lot of it wrong, but it's it is the idea, um, yeah. Of, I guess basically that that's mm. you know your inner child, which I've found out is like the uh, the metaphor, I guess, in a way for feelings. Mm -hmm. Just all of the feelings that because throughout your childhood, that's where you learn to deal with them and feel them and or suppress them, mm -hmm. or however you were raised or whatever happened to you. So it's the idea of. Uh, connecting with the child mm -hmm. and being like i got you we're safe or we're yes. okay or this is an okay feeling to feel or don't be scared or whatever you want to say to your inner child whatever you want to do you know sometimes you just want to you know i don't know if you sometimes get the urge to like do something where you're like why do i suddenly want to just jump up and down that's not very adult and that's yeah. 
You're in a child You're trying in a to come child, out. You're like wanting to do something. I mean, I think it's, it's there's a book called Homecoming, which I think was written in like I don't know the 40s or something, but apparently it's still like the the Bible of um, <laughs> psychotherapy in terms really? of child. Yeah, not read it yet because I'm <laughs> I'm going to need some headspace for that. <laughs> but yeah, there's something nice about it, isn't it? To be like, oh, I was once a child. Yeah, I was once a child, and then suddenly yeah. I had to close that person down. Yeah, yeah, and actually. And yeah, to be honest, probably like all Western frameworks for like how we think about childhood need rethinking. There's almost also like the way that we kind of think that kids don't have a sexuality is something that I think about a lot. Like, I think I was quite sexual as like a six, seven year old, like how I, but we just pretend, I don't know, like mm, yeah. maybe we, maybe we all try and compart, we go, that's childhood and this is adulthood, but like yeah. we need to maybe think of them both kind of happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can almost instinctively feel how uncomfortable that makes people yes, feel. Exactly. But it's, but it's like kind of human nature. It's that, like it, if you can either suppress it or not. And I think that's a big thing about the UK and, the UK's general relationship with control and sex and sexuality and just this, you know, it, it, you can almost feel the tenseness of... Yeah, we have a fucked up... Oh, my real, God. Can I swear on this? Yeah, please yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a really fucked up way of thinking about sex. Yeah. It's, like, really damaging. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's it's. I feel like even for cis, straight Head, blah 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 people even they are like struggling with the, oh god mm. this is a we just don't really talk about, about it and like yeah. i've been to gay sex parties in like london and berlin or america and i always have a much better time when they're not in london when when they're in london they tend to be really anonymous to the point of like bumping into someone is game over like everyone's avoiding bumping bumping into people they know they tend to be really dark and they have a kind of like get in get out vibe you know like once you've come you can go and like if you're someone who's dealing with sexual shame like being in an environment where you're like basically looking down in the dark and then okay. trying to come as quickly as you can but w these ones i went to in america and like in berlin like groups of friends meet up together and go together, get naked. You know, you can see your friend like bend over the banister and it's like, hey, Jimmy, how are you? <laughs> like, and actually that's what it should be like. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. obviously this is what we all do. But oh honestly, God. whenever I've been to like a gay sex space in London, I am like, fuck, I hope I don't bump into anyone. And yeah. actually now that like, I've got a tiny bit more of a profile than I, I actually don't really go to them as much in London because yeah. people will be like, wait, I think I've seen you on stage before. Oh, this is really awkward. And I'm yeah. like, okay, I don't think it needed to be awkward. I had the same feeling when I was 16. I lied about my age to work in a sex shop. Did you? Yeah, and it was the same. I felt like all of these, I was dating someone who was very, very much, I don't know if prude is a problematic word, but he was very, um, you know, he, you know, we, we brush our teeth if we've given a blowjob. That oh, type wow. of thing. Okay. It was too much. It was too much. It was a, he had to pick me up from work sometimes. He'd like park around the corner because he didn't want to. I mean, it was awful. But then suddenly I was in this space where people were just like talking about anal and they were just talking about these, yeah, the parties at the, oh, I forget the name of it, Shibaro? The, um, kind of like the fancy Japanese bondage. Oh, yeah. The, oh, God, yeah. There's, Chibaro, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, no, I know you're talking about. I know Fringe do a sort of workshop at it, on it. Yeah, this is like an art form, basically, but you tie up people. That's all I know. And, and you know, I started knowing sex workers. And oh, it was just the most liberating, freeing mm. environment to be in. Because it was so... I know. I was at a dinner party recently, and someone asked someone, what do you do? And she was like, I'm a sex worker. And everyone went silent for like a second and i probably did as well like i i probably like not just how mm. culturally we are about mm. it and i was like why is this why are we doing this yeah yeah i i i feel like i mean i can only really talk from a gay male body experience but gay spaces here are not happy oh. they have a lot of shame and that's not how I think it should be, especially when you're a sexuality that's kind. Unless it's a kind of shame that you're reveling in. Uh, yeah. Which unless is, it's on that's purpose. really fun. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. No. Um, okay, there's so much to talk to you about. Um, the non-binary podcast that you did with... Uh, Caitlin. Caitlin ben Benedict. Yeah, Benedict. yeah. 
Oh, thank it's you so, so much. Good. Oh, thank it's you for so listening. Good. It's so I haven't heard the rest of it because I don't want it to end yet. So oh. I have like a few episodes. I'm like I'm saving them for like a special time when I need to deal with things. Oh, it's so. It was called NB. NB. Oh, my, it's a BBC sound. Yeah, it's BBC okay. sound. So it's actually Caitlin's journey of oh, like yes. them figuring out that they're non-binary and about to tell their pe- their father, and it's kind of about their journey and they don't really have any non-binary friends so they reached out to me to kind of quote unquote mentor them not that I have anything to teach but that was you know the narrative framework but essentially what the podcast was about was about um following their journey to like understanding their identity and listening to as many other non-binary people as possible I think that's kind of what I took away from the podcast was like the breadth of like intelligence and brilliance of just non-binary voices in britain like the podcast essentially just involved me shutting up and inviting these great people to talk and then being like wow um and again what i loved about that podcast similar to like writing a book was that there was no debate there was not Mm. a single cis person we had to talk to you know it was even the producer was was non-binary so it was just very like there was no conversation of justifying it we just you know obviously that's it these are experiences and just like the multiplicity of experiences. It was just, it was actually, we we wanted to make something that was just really like joyous and, you know, non-polemical again, just like people talking about their lives and the joys of it. And sometimes the struggles, but we get a lot of people just saying how refreshing it was to hear this being talked about in a happy, light way. Mm. I don't know. Did you have a moment or did you just always know? Being non-binary? Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah, it's it's so hard to know because like you kind of look back in retrospect and you're like, that's probably I was experiencing gender dysphoria, but I didn't have the language. So in my memory, it's not a thing yet. But like for me, two full on incidents were, well, one being in the Middle East was I only ever wanted to be with my mum. I really didn't want to be with my brother or father. I didn't want to be in any all male spaces. Like even during prayer, I was very like, because in the Middle East, it's like there's a big separation between men and women, like in, in all forms of society. So that I remember just finding very like what's going on. And I used to become very like I used to like hang like hold my mom's thighs mm. all the time. I think it was like almost me just being like, I want to be your body. Um, So that was like that. And then this next time that I had. I think an articulation of gender dysphoria was when I was about 13 and I became really obsessed with marine biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became like a full on expert. I worked in a marine aquatics shop every weekend, every summer. I had my whole marine coral reef at home. It became this like, it was like when home life was becoming especially traumatic, I kind of became, I mean, it was my world. I didn't really talk much in those years. I just, looked after my tank and did my work. And I think, I think it was the fluidity um, and the fact that like I was seeing creatures change gender the whole time, which happens in the marine world. So like if a female clownfish dies, the male will just transition, um, which is ridiculous. Wow. Yeah, it's very non-binary down there. Like, <laughs> down there, yeah. Yeah, so I think for me yes. it was just that. It was like, and and yeah, I think that was one of the first times that I like, saw myself because it was very intense for me marine biology like people would be like what the hell are you i just would be like no one can touch my tank you know would get up at seven in the morning saturday would go to the shop wouldn't talk to anyone would just like look after the fish and i've got you know sea life tattooed on me so sea life is a very big thing for me wow is it (laughs) sea life is also the sea so the i mean i does i do you feel i was in brighton a month ago and just seeing the ocean. <sighs> really? Yeah, it really calm so you? calming. For me, I think it's the sea life. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the knowledge of the creatures. Yeah. And seeing... Um, I was think, talking to some queer feminist kind of porn people recently, and they showed me this website of sex toys that are based on um, non-human phalluses so sort of just like tentacles and that kind of stuff because like and and actually i didn't realize that there was such a dominant of like queer people identifying with non-human like desire 
Wow. Um, and I think there is, you see it maybe like in queer sci-fi particularly, but like kind of an investment in these things that do things that we wish we could do. Yeah. Or we wish we could be like, I feel like that, that for me was the ocean. Cause you know, my, I guess like what I was experiencing at home was very conservative. It was that boys do this, girls do this. This is wrong. This is good. It was so like binary. And then like in the same, but in the corner of my room, there was this thing where like starfish would could just, you know, a leg could be chopped off mm. and they would, they would just grow another one and different fish help each other. You get a lot of like socialist activity in the ocean, like different fish will just, will kind of communicate in order to like help have the same prey or something. So I think I was just like experiencing what I thought was just like this sort of really kind of aggressive viewpoints at home and then I just had this tank which just did whatever the fuck it wanted and it was very important for me that's amazing I loved and then, it then you heard the word non-binary was that like a oh that's 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 what it yeah is. definitely I think it was just like oh yeah oh right okay yeah exactly I mean you identify as non-binary right yeah, yeah, what yeah. was it for you um for me it was a a day of so I had just seen Travis Alabanza just done a thing, like a BBC interview, and I just watched it, so it was kind of in the back of my head. Oh, they did a really good job there. Oh, it's brilliant. And at the same time, I had another friend come out as non-binary. I think they'd been non-binary for a while, and I just had it in the back of my head, oh, I need to ask them what their pronouns are, because I haven't asked yet, I need to ask that. So that was also in the back of my head. And then I did something on Instagram, and someone DM'd me and said, you are a beautiful woman. And then I felt sick. I really? suddenly felt really sick. And it, it's always felt wrong. Every Like my whole life, whenever someone said girl, woman, lady, female, it's always felt wrong. But I've always just sort of, the same that I did with my queerness for, <laughs> you know, when my friend came out to me as bisexual when I was 14, I was like, ha ha, yeah. <laughs> but that's how everyone feels, so fuck off. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> I just hadn't even, and I, I mean, I would kiss girls and I would fall in love with girls like have huge crushes on them and still in my head like no I'm straight obviously because I just never connected those two in my head and it was kind of the same with gender I've always been like oh, I guess everyone feels a bit weird when they're called woman yeah I and mean, that's probably just part of being a woman is Ugh, why do you call me this stupid word all the time that's oh that's annoying but it was the first time I'd had I think it's because I had Travis's words in my head I had this question I had to ask my friend and then suddenly the those thoughts mixed with being called a beautiful woman. Just, mm. Oh God, it, it was just this like, <laughs> like my brain just went, okay, we're done now. We're done with trying to yeah, now wow. address this. And I left a very long voice message to Travis. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God, I need to tell you this. Oh, uh, did they? they were, oh yeah, they were amazing. Oh I'm God, sure they were. it was the best message ever to get back. Um, but that's sort of, you know, that was it. For, like, that's all I really needed. I mean, it's still annoying to be called woman and stuff, which obviously happens because I haven't spoken out a lot about this because mm -hmm. I can't answer the questions. I don't know. I just don't know. Do you do you sort of say where you, do you put your pronouns on your Instagram? No, or? I haven't, and I haven't really. You know, <laughs> my my agent is very much like, you know, you can uh, you can talk about this and you can make. And I was like, yeah, I, yeah, but I feel like I just need to sit with it a bit. Yeah. So I talk about it on podcasts and yeah. with people who get it yeah, and, you know, yeah yeah but you don't want to have to be like defending done, it yet yeah because i'm and that's just me basically i'm always causing a thing on social media i'm always loud about something and i know that there's a huge group of people especially within my industry who are like oh what's she doing now you know mm. what what's this about now or, you know now she's angry about this so now she's going to do a thing about that and i'm like if i had this feeling that if i'm suddenly out there saying oh by the way i'm also not a woman you know you have to respect me because even though i'm fat or because i'm fat you have to do this you have to i'm also this and i feel like it's another nuisance well no that's that's i i hear where your anxieties are coming from but i think that you've probably just internalized like Mm. Oh yeah, the patriarchy <laughs> yeah definitely where, like yeah. it's like you've swallowed what they might say yeah definitely but you know, you can ask for as much as you want, I think. Like, yeah, no, no, not even right. I think, I know. Yeah, 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 you know. Like, yeah. I think it's so, <laughs> I'm, I think the narrative of, like, 
God, what's another thing you're asking for now is actually, you know, just a way for people who are quite ignorant to like, mm. um, you know, continue like not having to learn. Mm. And it's also not a huge thing that you're asking, mm. really. It's actually nothing. It's like a change of a pronoun. Yeah. Well, um, pronouns are even fine. I'm actually fine with whatever pronoun. It's the woman. Yeah. It's the woman, lady, that. But we I, should get rid of that anyway. Oh, God. It's not like, you know, just outside yeah. of like what your experience is, it clearly it really doesn't sit well with you. But like, I don't see why people have to use that. Yeah. Until, you know, we know what someone's gender is. You yeah. Know. I, th- I think, and then there's, there's a big part of me that still feels like I'm, I misgender myself a lot. You know, you know, we have the brains and we have conditions to think a certain way. But I'm, I often just say woman and I go, oh, no, wait. Oh, wait, I'm just used to saying that. And I still have this idea that, oh, but maybe I need to know that I need to know how to do this myself first before mm. I start asking right. people to not call me a woman. But I, I also, I'm also very like outside of my body, looking at myself, and I know that if I wasn't me, I'd say, oh no, like that's absolutely fine, and there's no police trying to, you know, fix this, or you you can do or be whatever you want to be. But then there's just all these, oh, it's a big thing to just put out there and start saying to people and you know you also don't have to like it's not something you know you can like i've seen people do posts being like look i don't really want to engage in this topic but fyi here are my pronouns and this is just a request and that's it you know to be honest i get my agent to because i'm like you you know i am vocal about my non-binary identity but like i don't like sort of being like that person didn't use my pronoun because actually that gets tiring yeah so i just got my agent to like Smart. find any instances in which i'm being misgendered and to just fix it themselves oh that's a good so like get you know you can just have yeah. little ways without maybe feeling like you're putting yourself on the firing line too yeah. much yeah or you're just right. you know makes make sure that like someone on your team is making sure all the copy yeah. is right and then it's sort of happening and you know you can see how you feel about it but also, yeah. I feel like there's this pressure with self-definition that, like, once you've defined it something, that's it. It's forever. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be the case, you know. Like, you can go, okay, this is how I'm feeling at the moment, and this is what how I would feel better. If that changes for whatever reason, that's not a crime. Um, and I don't see why that should bring anyone any anxiety. Also, I follow you on Twitter. You're very, you're lovely on Twitter. <laughs> also, like, you've probably internalized, like, the aggressive woman. Yeah, thing. so where is your rage? Because you mentioned rage in the beginning, mm. that you have a lot of rage. Where, where, how do you feel it? How does it manifest itself? Does it manifest itself? Do you know how to deal with it? Yeah, not completely. For me, I don't know if you're similar, I do try and sublimate it into positives. mm um, I like to harness my rage. Like, I can't deny that it's there and I would never want to be like, oh, don't feel that. But for me, like, I'm a really productive person and I love to create, like, you know, whether it's TV or film or whatever. So I think the rage is like, I try and use the energy from it. I kind of like to think of, like, emotions as, like, all the same, but they just, like, it's all the same amount of energy, but they just manifest in different ways. So I, like, try to manifest like the intense energy of rage and put it into something productive like a drag show or and make people feel something positive from it i think that's actually quite a queer experience you know turning trauma into glitter kind of thing um so for me it's about like using it and creating something from it but unfortunately and i don't know if you get you get this i got i get the impression that maybe you do but like a lot of rage at myself all the time Mm. and that is something i'm really starting to become quite sick of like if a traffic genuinely if a traffic light goes red i go like what did i do Mm. or like you know i'll probably leave this and go what are the seven things i said that were potentially Mm. offensive um and that is really tiring like i mean i went on a date actually the other night and the next day i was like did I say something which could have offended him or was I quite loud there or did did he see me flirt with so-and-so at the club or, I, you know, like you just... And that is probably quite a queer condition. I don't mm. know. Do you get mad at yourself a lot? The anger is different to me because anger came very, very late and then it had like a full explosion for a couple of years and now I think, we, I think we're in a good place. Mm. It's I think it's more fear maybe or anxiety that's that voice but my voice is more my voice is what if 
And what it's literally every single second of every single day. Uh, uh, if I just have to go to the grocery shop, like from the from the moment I leave my house, what if I forget my wallet? What if I forget my keys and I can't get back in? And then what if I have to sit out in the street for like five hours? And then what if I also forget my As you're on the way. This is just like before I've even left the house, right? What if my housemate is in the kitchen? What if she's going to judge me for whatever? But okay, I'm going to go downstairs. What if I fall on the stairs? If I twist my ankle on the stairs? If I open oh, the door wow. and there's someone outside the door wanting to kill me? If I don't close the door correctly and someone walks into my house? What if oh, it's crossing the road? What if that car's not going to stop? What if... It, okay, it did stop. What if he thinks that I'm uh, bad for walking across the road like this? What if he suddenly drives into me? What constant? Like it's a constant. That must make you have really bad FOMO. It is so tiring. It's so tiring, and I I didn't even realize this until my friend said something like, um, "Oh my god, I can't believe you'll have days where you don't leave your house." I just couldn't do it. Uh, and then he had like a kind of a critical remark about me ordering groceries in and I tried to explain to him right if I order groceries that's like what if I twist my angle down the stairs what if I don't hear the doorbell uh what if he gets angry with me because he couldn't find a place to park what if he forgot to put something in the thing what if he doesn't arrive in time but that's nothing compared to, to like times actually going a million out. of all the thoughts that can yeah it's so I know that's, that's, no it's a lot that's exactly what my, my therapist you, said when I told her she was like wow do you um find that you um like as a result like risk assess the future so like if you were like if tomorrow you had a meeting would you already be what ifing everything that could go wrong in the media meeting or does it just sort of happen in the moment it's just a constant right back so i don't think i have time to i don't think i think about tomorrow because Mm. i have to think about all these things right now Mm. but it stems from my psychopathic grandfather who was just like really oh so your mother's coming to pick you up oh what if she's dead what if she's gone somewhere else what if she's you know all these you know we can go to the butchers unless he's died or unless he's you know wow. is this so I, my therapist is trying to teach me to make it like um place it as a record player it's like it's a tape recorder it's not commenting on actual life mm. it's commenting on nothing it's just something that someone has one point recorded onto a tape and now they're saying these words but it has nothing to do with your reality. So I've been trying to, you know, sit on the bus and then think. Uh, immediately it's like, what if someone sits behind you? What if they're going to cut off your hair or spit on you or kill you? Or And then go, okay, is that an actual risk? Is it? And I have to go, no. Good. Then shut up. And then I, I've actually managed to get oh, that's good. quiet sometimes, but it's so hard that sounds really intense intense. i'm sorry no no it's fine i have two therapists i'm fine (laughs) (laughs) no i i get you for me yeah i i think what you say is really interesting about differentiating reality from your own psychological experience and until quite recently like there was no differentiation like if i thought something it had definitely already happened so like Mm like random stuff like you know went out to a party said this to so and so and then in my head I'm like that was really rude the way that I said it definitely and then I got back to so and so so now this third party who wasn't even there hurt Mm. and they really hate me and then in my head like that is the reality of it like it took me a very long time to go oh I think that's just an interpretation Mm. um and it's making that distinction that's really like i think you know you may not be able to stop it happening but just going that's what that is well it's for, for everything to do with therapy for me has what has always worked has been logic mm. you know i would have a therapist and i'd be like well i'm the worst person in the world and she'd go really mm. why do you think you're so special that you're the worst person in the world what are the odds that you are the <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough you know or did they she'll stop me and go oh is it though do you think that? Do you actually think the person in the car thinks that when you walk in front of them? Do you think what are the arse is going to kill you? I'm like, I, don't, I can feel how annoyed I get because she's questioning this internal logic that you think you have. And but I like, guess you, you have to, don't you? You, you have, have to. You have to go, right, sh- shut up. I'm not just going to let you say these things. I'm going to stop this right now and mm. say, is it a risk? Out of interest, what happens when you're performing? Because for me, that's the only time ever in my life that I feel present and I'm just like experiencing what I'm experiencing mm. there, there, and then I'm in control. Mm. N- not control in like an OCD way, but I'm just mm. fully inhabiting that space and time. Absolutely. Is, is that the same yeah. for you? And I didn't know that until I was in a cab and I was talking about anxiety and I was trying to explain how anxiety worked. And 
then I said I was a performer and I said I, like I know that's a bit silly that you know it sounds like that shouldn't be a thing when I have social anxiety he said no no because you're turning the the other way you can see them and you know they can hear you so that makes complete sense oh what like, oh yeah <laughs> it actually makes complete sense yeah it is it, for me it's it's the best thing ever was it from the when did you first perform it's literally from the youngest age yeah from like yeah from like seven I did a, like a school play but yeah for me I've always I think it's about I think what it is is like you know with anxiety and mental health and OCD like you kind of get really locked into your own interpretation of the world and like your own experience of the world and you cut yourself off and suddenly what I love about performing is like it's like you're there the audience are there and and you just engage i just like it's almost like an escape of yourself mm. and i know people think performance is really narcissistic i actually think bad performance is quite narcissistic because you can watch a performer sort of make it all about them but like when you i feel like when you're performing well it's like you're you're just actually giving out i don't know i love it i just i just love it Oh, I love it. So I can't wait for Edinburgh. I'm so excited yeah. to see you. Yeah, show. you too. What time is your show? I'm seven. Okay, I'm 9.30. So great. Perfect. perfect. Yeah, great. And your venue was? Assembly Rooms. So that's by it's, Newtown. Yeah, it's just actually just by Primark, apparently. I'm so excited. Yeah, you too. Oh, it's going to be It's so going to be a good year. There's loads. Travis is doing a show. Travis, I think Scotty is doing it as well. Is Scotty doing a show? I think so. Okay, and my friend Rasmussen. Um. Yes, Tom, I know. Do you know them? Tom Glitter. Yeah, Tom Glitter. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're amazing. They're amazing. I got the book in one of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boxes. Oh, they're great. So they're doing a show. <laughs> no, that's so About cool. kind of a link to their book. It's going to just be a happy year. Oh, my year. God, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. I'm going to ask you. Um, gonna ask this. I can talk to you forever, but uh, I yeah. want to do a part two at some point because there's this so much to talk about. Do you want to just do it now or do you want to have a break I first? Have, I don't have time. I have another thing. I don't have time to okay. do a part two. But I'm going to do the last question and I'll have you back. Is okay. That? Yeah, yeah. Last question is this. Okay. So, you're in the delivery room, mm -hmm. and you've just been born. Mm -hmm. And you're holding yourself as a baby. You, right now, are holding you as a baby. A tiny, tiny baby. Tiny, tiny Amru. And Amru is crying and crying and crying because they're terrified. Because there's lights and sounds everywhere, and that was not there in the womb. And what is this? What is this? Is this life? Is life going to be just lights and sounds all the time? Because this is very terrifying. And you can say something to them mm -hmm. that might calm them down you can't give any advice they won't be able to remember this okay but you can say something about what life's going to be mm -hmm. up until the point where you are now because you know exactly what's going to happen so you can say whatever you want to teeny tiny baby amru what will you say to yourself it's not your fault that's what i would say <laughs> do you still need to be told that i should probably tell myself that more <laughs> definitely <laughs> Oh, I feel emotional. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've had can, such a nice day. Where can people find your stuff? Your book? Should people should pre-order the book? Yeah, you can pre-order the book, uh, Unicorn, The Memoir of a Muslim Drag Queen. And I'll be talking about my life on Glamru, which is on Instagram and um, Twitter, G-L-A-M-R-O-U. Not Glamour magazine, which sometimes people follow instead. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And then Edinburgh. Yeah, Edinburgh from yes. Quran to Queen is the show. What's yours that. called? Uh, so the, the <laughs> you, you have such a good title and I'm like, The Bum Swing. Uh, uh, is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called That's a great swing. name. Thank you. <laughs> right, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Um, I've had a great time. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy that. That was uh, Glamru. Go and find them on all of the social media. Find their podcast, NB, which is about being non-binary, which is amazing. Well, I probably shouldn't call it their podcast. Um, it's Caitlin Benedict's podcast, where Glamru uh, plays a big part. So go and listen to that. Oh, my God. Pre-order their book. I'm so excited. Uh, the first time I met Glamru, they showed up in this... Oh my god, I do not have the words to describe the outfit. It was so glorious. It was, um, they had a unicorn horse, not a, well, a unicorn on like a stick. I don't know. There's probably a word for it in English. And this beautiful pink hair, and it was just, I mean, a wig, I assume. And, oh, anyways, I can, I'm just gonna stop gushing. You're all gonna be like, all right, stop it. It's annoying now. So, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just really into glamour. So, 
make sure that they feel appreciated on all the social media. Um, feel free to give this podcast a five-star rating. That is a really big help. It's also a help to tweet about it and tell your friends and share the episodes. Why not go on social media now and share your favorite episode? And if you tag Podmo, P-O-D-M-O-H on Twitter or uh, Sophie Hagen DK on Instagram, that's me. Or Sophie Hagen on Twitter, that's also me. Or on Facebook, we'll we'll share it around a bit and uh, make nice. Now, after the recording with Glamru, we had an extra chat where I asked them the six questions that I always ask, which is what's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? What's the stupidest thing you did as a teenager? I asked for a life hack, which was the answer they gave was the best life hack I have ever heard in my life. And I need to process that properly because, wow. And we talked about their unpopular opinion, which I can see why that would be unpopular. Uh, they told me what makes them happy and they told me what they would most want people to know about them. It's all in all a very nice extra snippet that you can get if you become a patron, which you do on patreon.com forward slash mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D. You can choose what you want to donate per episode, and then at the end of the month, it'll just automatically deduct, and it's all very safe and nice, and it helps me in the podcast so much. So that's patreon.com forward slash Mopad, M-O-H-P-O-D. Now, if you give $5 or more per episode, you become a friend of the podcast. If you become a friend of the podcast, I will read out your name at the end of the episode. And today, the day of recording this, these are the people who are absolute heroes, uh, who are friends of the podcast. So I want to give a huge thank you to... Andrea Papillon, Andy Walker, Ashley Salmon, Alton Blue Sky, Barry Norton, Caitlin, Kat Posse, Claire McCowlin, Con Connor O'Donovan. I keep wanting to say Donna O'Connovan. I'm so sorry, Connor. Danny Beckett, Daniel Reifershee, Daphne Fanger, Eleanor, Emma Appleton, Emma Chan, Fanella Dunn, Privacy, Osiris, Aurora Terratops, Aurora Terratops, Fiona Richardson, George Pearson, Hannah Keel, Harold Van Dyke, Harry and Lily French, Harry Minnett, Helena Thomas, Ida Sugolarsen, Inger Ellingsen, James Brand, Janie Mahoney, Joe C., Kathy Draxelbauer, Katie Hatfield, Katrina Engelsen, KT, Kim Williams, Kirsten Davidson, Queen T, Maury Fraser, Manso, Mia Marbles, Lost, Megan Roberts, Mark Fraser, Olivia Robson, Paul Swaddle, Perpetual Motion, Pierre Fenne, Rachel Hemsley, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips, The Three Rachels, Ragdoll, Robert Knowles, Robin Kappa, Rosie Evans, Russell Hughes, Sarah Ferreira Eikerset, Sarah Ellett, and Sarah Plumer. We have the three Sarahs. We have the three Sarahs versus the three Rachels. Who will win? Sasia Papadakis, Sheena Machette Cole, Cecil Fjeldsun, and Susie Tyler. Thank you so, so much for listening and for helping out with this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. I cannot even begin to tell you. Thank you to Glamru. Thank you to Dave Pickering for producing this episode to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle, and to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo. I will speak to you soon. Bye! Oh,